This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Introduction to Defibrillation by Dr. Amjai Mazwi. Healthcare workers in all healthcare settings should always adhere to the latest World Health Organization guidelines on hand hygiene and barrier precautions before and after contact with a patient, bodily fluids, or patient surroundings. For more information, please watch our video entitled Hand Hygiene. Hello, my name is Njai Mazwi. I'm a clinical fellow in cardiology here at Children's Hospital Boston, and I'm going to talk to you about defibrillation. I'm going to present the way that we think through defibrillation and the algorithm that we use here at Children's. You may have to modify this in some way to make this applicable to your setting. Introduction Defibrillation involves using direct current to apply an electrical shock to the myocardium. It is an asynchronous shock, meaning that the shock is not timed to deliver at any specific point in the cardiac cycle. And the goal in delivering the shock is to depolarize the myocardium and atrioventricular conduction. The depolarization effectively resets the sinoatrial node, allowing the restoration of sinus rhythm. The indications for defibrillation are ventricular fibrillation, and pulseless ventricular tachycardia. The first one is very intuitive and is the classic indication that everyone remembers. The second is somewhat less intuitive, but is equally important. Pulseless ventricular tachycardia, we defibrillate. Ventricular tachycardia with a pulse, we cardiovert. Equipment. The basic functionality is all going to be encompassed in the box, which you see here. It's extremely important that in whatever environment you practice, you orient yourself to the functions that are available in your unit. There's considerable variation between manufacturers in where the buttons lie and how things are adjusted. And there's even considerable variation between models made by the same manufacturer. And so in your environment to minimize the amount of time that you take to successfully defibrillate a patient, do orient yourself to your machine. That's because the most important determinant of your success with defibrillation is time to defibrillation. Delivering an appropriate shock to the myocardium as early as possible in this pathological process is something that is likely to guarantee your success. So starting out with the piece that interacts with the patient, the paddles or pads. Both the paddles and the pads come in two sizes. Looking first at our paddle, we have pediatric sized paddle and we have an adult paddle. This is a pediatric sized pad and you can see when you compare it to an adult sized pad how significant the difference in sizes. The cutoff is weight. We use the pediatric sized pads and we use the pediatric sized paddle for patients that weigh 10 kilograms and less. Any patient that weighs more than 10 kilograms, we should try to use an adult-sized pad or paddle. It's very important to know exactly which one of the two is connected to your machine before you deliver a shock. There is no difference 
in efficacy between paddles and pads, so you can use whichever one of the two you are most comfortable with. It's extremely important, regardless of whether or not you use pads or paddles, to ensure that your equipment has very good contact with the patient's skin. When you're using pads, this is extremely easy to do because of this extensive sticky surface that conforms to the shape of the patient when the pad is applied. With paddles, it's much more challenging because the paddles have a rigid surface that does not conform to the patient's shape. The way that we get around this is we apply an electroconductive gel to the paddle before placing the paddle in contact with the patient's body. The electrostatic gel both ensures a better footprint of contact and reduces the impedance or the resistance to the electrical flow at the skin surface, ensuring a greater, more effective charge is delivered to the myocardium. The reason that contact is so important is twofold. The first is inadequate contact can result in the delivery of an inadequate shock. And the second is that if there is contact with only a small portion of the paddle or the pad, the entire delivered shock passes through the small area of contact. And what that does is it significantly increases the chances of an entry burn where that shock is delivered to the skin. Additionally, it focuses the electrical density of the shock and is much more likely to cause myocardial damage in the path of that shock. Moving now to the actual box itself, the key features of the box that are going to help you successfully defibrillate a patient are, first of all, this large knob in the center. This knob allows us to select energy in joules to deliver to a patient. Once the machine is turned on, you can rotate the knob to select the appropriate level of energy based upon your patient's weight. Other buttons that you will need to be familiar with on your machine to effectively deliver a shock is the charge button. You select the charge button once you have an appropriate voltage dialed in on that first dial that we discussed and wait for the machine to give you a signal that it's charged. The signal varies between machines. In some machines, it's an audio cue. In some machines, for instance, our machine, here, the shock button lights up when the machine is fully charged. It is the responsibility of the person delivering the shock to ensure that everyone is clear of the patient before a shock is delivered. That is because shock will conduct through the patient and into any caregivers that are still in contact with the patient. The algorithm that we use here at Children's involves the person who's going to deliver the shock saying, I'm clear, you're clear, we're all clear, and then waiting for some sort of affirmative before delivering that shock. When the device is charged, the shock button is depressed once all caregivers are clear and a shock is delivered to the myocardium. If you were called to the bedside when the patient was already in ventricular fibrillation, and you did not have the pads conveniently placed, the priority is to do whatever you can to support the patient's cardiac output until you're in a position to defibrillate. So that involves the immediate initiation of CPR. Preparations for defibrillation. For an adult-sized patient, place the pads over the mid-sternum at the base of the heart and the mid-axillary line over the apex of the heart. If you have a pediatric-sized patient and or the pads come into contact with each other when placing both pads interiorly, you should use the anterior-posterior pad placement. 
where one pad is placed anteriorly in the mid-sternal position and the other pad is placed posteriorly in the interscapular position. In this video, we will be following the American Heart Association Pediatric Advanced Life Support, or PALS algorithm. Please make sure to familiarize yourself with your locally used algorithm. In PALS, the first defibrillation shock is given at 2 joules per kilogram, and the second defibrillation shock is given at 4 joules per kilogram. Subsequent shocks may be given at 4 joules per kilogram, or some providers may increase the dose of subsequent shocks to a maximum of 10 joules per kilogram, or the maximum adult dose recommended by a particular defibrillator. Physiologically, what you're trying to do is select the maximum amount of energy that you need to defibrillate the patient without giving any more energy to the myocardium than is absolutely necessary. And that's because electric shocks delivered to the myocardium have the potential to cause burns to the patient that we've already discussed. They also have the potential to cause localized myocardial damage. And the amount of myocardial damage caused by the shock is proportionate to the shock given. The more energy you impart to the heart, the greater the amount of myocardial damage you cause. Finally, excessively large shocks also significantly increase the likelihood or the risk of a post-shock arrhythmia, which is something that you want to try to avoid. Demonstration of defibrillation. I'm now going to walk you through an actual simulated algorithm uh, that mimics the algorithm that we use here at Children's Hospital. To orient you to the scenario, we have the device that we have just been discussing. We have a readout of the patient's vitals. Lying here on the bed before me, I have a 10 kilogram infant um, who we have a clinical worry of arrhythmias in. And so I'm going to place my pads to begin with. I've chosen pads for ease of use. Note, CPR and calling for help are the most appropriate first steps. For purposes of this demonstration, we will proceed directly to defibrillation. So we have a patient in sinus rhythm uh, with stable vital signs. We have an acute change in the patient's rhythm. It's a coarse baseline. This is a hemodynamically unstable rhythm. We start by selecting voltage, two joules per kilogram for the 10 kilogram infant. We charge the device. We say, I'm clear, you're clear, we're all clear. We discharge. After defibrillation, resume CPR. CPR should be performed for two minutes, or five cycles. After two minutes of CPR, compressions are paused while the cardiac rhythm and pulses are assessed. It was an unsuccessful shock. The patient remains in a hemodynamically unstable ventricular fibrillation. We effectively double the voltage that we're delivering by going to the four joules per kilogram mark. We charge the device. I'm clear, you're clear, we're all clear. We deliver our second shock. After defibrillation, resume CPR. CPR should be performed for two minutes or five cycles.
According to PAL's guidelines, if return to normal cardiac rhythm does not occur after the second shock, epinephrine should be administered at this point, and then every three to five minutes during the resuscitation. After two minutes of CPR, compressions are paused while the cardiac rhythm and pulses are assessed. When a patient is not returning to a normal cardiac rhythm, after two to three cycles of resuscitation, remember to think about incorrect causative factors that might make it difficult to convert a patient's cardiac rhythm, including the H's and T's. The H's include hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion, acidosis, hyper and hypokalemia, hypoglycemia, and hypothermia. The T's include toxins, cardiac tapenade, tension pneumothorax, coronary or pulmonary thrombosis, and trauma. Once again, an unsuccessful shock. Once again, we charge the device at that same energy level. I'm clear, you're clear, we're all clear. We deliver a shock. After defibrillation, resume CPR. CPR should be performed for two minutes or five cycles. According to PAL's guidelines, if returned to normal cardiac rhythm, does not occur after the third shock, antiarrhythmic medications should be considered at this point. Amiodarone is recommended after the third shock and then again after every other shock. After two minutes of CPR, compressions are paused while the cardiac rhythm and pulses are assessed. And with our third shock, we were successful in converting the patient back to sinus rhythm. Even when you think you have restored the patient to what you recognize as sinus rhythm, it's extremely important to immediately reassess the patient clinically. Look at the blood pressure, look at the pulse, feel for both a peripheral and a central pulse to ensure that this is a perfusing rhythm before you were reassured that you've definitively converted the rhythm. A point that I want to make using this patient and this weight is although you can dial in voltages on the machine, the intervals are quite often not absolutely graded. And what I mean by that is, this is a 10 kilogram infant. When we required our first shock at 20 joules, it was very easy to select a 20 joule level because that exact number appears on our graded voltage scale. After our first shock was unsuccessful, when we needed a four joule per kilogram shock, there is no setting for 40. On this machine, you can choose either 30 or 50. If this is a choice that you are forced to make in selecting jewels to deliver to your patient, always round up. So the second and third shocks that I delivered to this patient, I delivered at the 50 joule mark, which is a little bit over two joules per kilogram. So you round up, you never round down on that voltage. Documentation. The following should be documented in the patient's records. Indication for the procedure. Date and time of the procedure.
the number of shocks and the voltage required to defibrillate the patient, duration of CPR, and the name, dosage, and route of administration for all medications given during defibrillation. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.